out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer and performer, Ellen Foley, who has a new solo album out titled Fighting Words. This came out on Urban Noise Music. Also, just to tell you, she is the vocalist on Meatloaf's 50 million selling album, Bat Out of Hell, and also sings on the classic song Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Anyway, this is the interview. After several minutes of casual but nice chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the, um, yes, the recording of the new album, Fighting Words, and, uh, you know, the period of lockdown, which, let's face it, we're going to talk about for, um, yes, probably a few more years. Well, possibly. Anyway, look, Ellen, take it away. Tell us when this all started to happen. Um, it was pre-lockdown. Gosh, oops, sorry. I think, you know, it, t- it took us, you know, a couple, maybe three years from the, um, from when Paul Foglino and I started, he was bringing me songs and we started to, you know, make some demos on our own. And then, then we decided what we were going to do. And he, uh, he did, um, basic tracks, drums and, uh, Bass and then sent him out to the other musicians and uh, Ula Hedwig, who's the singer with me on the record. Then he brought them all to me, and we we did we actually did them um, uh, uh, separately, even pre-pandemic. You know, because it's kind of the way you can do it now. I mean, my vocals were done in my living room. You know. Yes, everyone's got their own little sort of setup and studio, which is all very makes things much easier. Mm-hmm. But then during the sort of the unfortunate timing that was the pandemic and the lockdown for the last two years nearly, I mean, did much of it change or did you add any more material in into the album during that sort of gestation period? No, no, uh uh-uh. no, it, it, we, it was all there and sort of uh I mean we put it out I guess last August so it it was in it was in the the works it was you know cooking uh during the pandemic but um no no we didn't we didn't change anything yeah but I mean I think that I think that the record you know sends out kind of a you know um a sense of of unity and uh, it's got some it's some very I think uplifting moments to it that that you know uh, you know just coincidentally happen to you know work for the time we're in I think it's I think it's pretty pertinent and relevant uh, the stuff yeah. that we're seeing on the on the music. Well, there was one particular song which sort of stood out a lot when I was playing it, which is Fill Your Cup, which seems particularly, and I suppose, you know, that's the one that seems to sort of resonate a lot with the emotional sort of feeling at the moment, you know, as a collective consciousness. So that that was kind of an interesting one. And and again, there was kind of lots of songs about hope and family and community that sort of come out on the album. So I was just kind of curious how how that felt when, you know, the timing of, of the release and, and also what's happened in the last two years, which has slightly discombobulated our nation, really, hasn't it? All our nations, yes. <laughs> um, no, but the song, I, I do feel that Fill Your Cup is, is a, you know, the heart sort of a, um, 
an emotional centerpiece to it, most definitely. Yes. And it and it, it really plays on my sort of the maturing um, I've gone through certainly since my career began. And I was just, you know, a kid, you know, who, who was out for myself, you know, wanted to be a rock, rock and roll person and have a good time and all that, get a lot of attention. Well, I still want attention. So, <laughs> you know, that part hasn't changed. But, you know, I'm a mother. I'm, I'm, I'm older. You know, I've been married for a long time. So I know I, to me, it's important that the sharing of, of that kind of, of message on that song. Yes, I always cause... picture, I always picture, you know, in that song, life as a, a long table, you know, long table where you can keep bringing people in to join. And does That's it... how it feels to me. And as an artist and, and a singer and performer, does it sort of help with, with sort of both going through your own sort of experience and decades and thinking, God, oh, this is what I was like in my teens, this is like I'm in my 20s. And obviously when a lot of people were starting out in music, there wasn't any sort of blueprint of what happens. But now we see what happens to people like the Rolling Stones who are still performing. We sort of heard David Bowie's last album that he released the day be, almost the day before he passed away, Black Star. Does yeah. having those kind of people and those you know, other artists about, does that sort of also help you sort of navigate a little bit about what you can also do as well with sort of releasing albums and sort of staying in it because obviously you know they're you know alongside people like you know Iggy Pop you know people who who've sort of forging still on aren't they you know who were there at the not quite the start of popular music but were quite close really and I just wondered if that kind of also helped you know with with you know bringing out this new album as well and sort of encouraged you to say no I'm going to go back out and do it again. Oh sure. Absolutely. You know, I, lo I love that, you know, rock and roll was, was always, rock and roll st started by and for the youth. And then the youth has, has grown up and gotten older. And, and, the, and the fact that, that some of these older artists are doing it is absolutely inspiring. You know, yes. I, I, I look at Mick Jagger and I say, boy, I better get off my ass and do some push-ups or something or dance around a little bit. You know, my God, what that boy does. It's amazing. It is um, quite, it is quite extraordinary, yeah. actually. Yes, and, yes. And, um, and but it's absolutely inspiring. And, you know, what's really pissing me off is a stupid um, um, a Paul McCartney and now who was it? Somebody else is saying how was it? Roger Daltrey are saying, oh, the Stones are just a, a blues band. I mean, I'm sorry, but they're a blues band who's still out there. You know, yes. what are you doing? And it's not it's not to say that, um, you know, the Stones are they they're, they're only they're only um, credit to this moment is that they're still alive and jumping around. They have amazing songs. You know what what they've done in their career is just as powerful and just as relevant as those other bands. Yes. And I think that's so tacky. I don't believe, why are they, why is everybody coming out uh, to, to pile on them right now? It's so tacky. Yes, I, I, I completely agree. Because I know there was about 10, 20 years ago, a lot of journalists would say, kind of write an article just to make a name from them for themselves saying you know why are they still doing it they should stop now they shouldn't be headlining Glastonbury and they shouldn't you know they should let the young people in and it's a bit like well it's not one or the other it could be both and they're just the journalists so I was really surprised when I saw those comments from various other musicians from their decades contemporary, to them. contemporary indeed, and I'm it? sure you know uh friends 
friend, people who have been friends of theirs their whole lives. You know that that McCartney, that the Stones and the Beatles were friends. You know, it was always like, well, in spite of any what might have been any kind of manufactured um, uh, contention between them, they were friends. But you know, maybe it's you know, in, in terms of, eh, who knows? Maybe he's just an old man. It doesn't know what he's saying. Yes, he's yeah. not a. He's not up there jumping around for two and a half hours. So maybe he doesn't have the energy. Maybe he's, maybe he's going a little soft all around. <laughs> and so coming back, going back to the album that's come out, there's another track on it, which is kind of a curious little, you know, um, number, which is the one I call my pain by, by your name. Can you kind of explore, you know, kind of elaborate a little bit on, on sort of, the sentiment behind that, but though you know, the title gives it away, really. But I mean, just kind of how that came about, and um, yes, your feelings for it. Well, I think it. Uh, you know, Paul had been writing for a long time. Paul Faglino, he had a band uh, here in New York called the Five Chinese Brothers, and I uh, most, you know, the 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 vast majority of these songs were written for me. But that I think that was around. Uh, uh, during the Five Chinese Brothers. And, and it's a country song with the country sentiment, you know. Uh, you, you know, what is that one song? You're tearing me apart, you're breaking my heart, so fuck you, you know, that kind <laughs> of, you know. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, that's a good old, you know, uh, but I love it, you know, I'm so glad he gave it to me and I had the opportunity because I love to sing. I I I love to sing the country stuff, and and I I'm seeing that even some of my other stuff, you know, the more rock stuff, you know, that there is there is kind of the inflection that country that I might have heard in country, and that I'm I'm bringing to it. Yes. Yeah, it, yeah, I love I I love singing it because you know in country you can really spread out, you can really use your muscles. You know, it's big, it's the big vocal you know, and the big emotion. Yeah, it's interesting because the album's quite varied, isn't it? There's there's some sort of rock songs, there's some sort of slightly more poppy songs, and then there's the sort of the country kind of quality as well. So you must quite enjoy sort of being able to sort of go to so many different sort of genres in one album. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, having said that, I don't feel that it feels like it's some sort of Frankenstein's monster. I think I think it all feels like it it fits together, even though there are, yeah, I guess different genres, but most of the songs are written by one person. Yes. Uh, you know, but but they they you know, there's there's the cover, there's Steinman, you know, which which, you know, all fits within my as it were, because it's a song I've been singing since I was twenty-five years old. Heaven can wait, and uh, and say like I found a love. You know, it's an R and B thing. You know, stuff stuff that's so um, sort of in, entrenched and in your DNA. You know, you throw it in with Paul's songs, and it all seems to fit together. Yes, well, I know that um, David Bowie would always. When he started to get it really together, which was in the 70s, more than the 60s work he did, he, he often had a really good sidekick. And you know, he had Mick Ronson or he had Niles, Nile Rogers. And he, you know, throughout his decades, he's, he's always, you know, Earl Slick. Do you find that working with, um, you know, Paul is equally, you know, is that person that you really need, you know, through, with your musical journey? Even more, even more so, because you see Bowie you know, was, you know, he wrote his own songs and these guys implemented it. 
So, yeah. but Paul, Paul is the songwriter. So it's, it's definitely 50, 50. I'm his sidekick and he's my sidekick. Yes. As it were. Even though, even though he would hate that because he never wants to be out front. He's so happy right now because <laughs> yeah, when we've, when we've done had bands before he's been, he's played the guitar and he's done vocal stuff. Well, now we have two guitar players and he's playing the bass. So when I ever I ask him anything or, you know, what do you think or or say this or get, he goes, hey, I'm just a bass player. I'm just a bass player. I said, how long are you going to hide behind? I'm just the bass player. You know, he's totally self-deprecating and I'm unassuming and all those annoying things. You know? Yes, it's far too decent because you have got an absolutely kicking band on this, haven't you? You know, the, the musicians yes. you've got are, are absolutely on it. Is this a band that he's put together himself or is this one that you've worked with before? Um, let's see, for the most part, it was people, yeah, yeah, it was pretty, that was the band that we had in that point, point in time. We, we, um, I think we only have two people right now from that, uh, configuration. We have Paul and we have Slim Simon, who, uh, played on, uh, on the record, who played, I just think he played brilliantly on the record, but we have a different, uh, um, drummer uh, and our keyboard players, our musical director, a guy named Charlie Roth, and uh, a different guitar player. Plus, we have a girl singer who's, who's you know, you know we, I did the duet with Carla, and so she's singing those parts, and she's got a lot of her personality. Her name's Emma Craig. She's, uh, she's great. Yes, because I think Charlie's worked with um, Suzanne Vega before, hasn't he? And he's worked with probably... Yeah, I mean, he's people. been, you know, and he's been everywhere. I mean, from from Rick Derringer and, uh, you know, and, and then with Garland Jeffries for a long time. And yeah, I, you know, he played with Ozzy. You know, but he, he, with me, he's musical director and he does keyboards, but he's also a drummer. He's a bass player. You know, he's just, yeah. Yes. And, and as, as we're sort of, um, sort of slowly getting older or quite quickly getting older, as it sometimes feel, does, um, you know, like how to sort of interpret people's music is kind of quite interesting because obviously there's a point where a band can no longer do it and then there's a cover band. But with, with Dear Old Meat Life, there was this amazing musical that I went to see twice in London. Did you, you know, and, and it was such uh -huh. a fantastic stage musical. Did you see, you'll go and see it yourself? I actually saw it in Toronto. Right, when it first kind of kicked off. Yes, yes. But it's it's playing over in England again. It's touring in England again now, right? Yes, yeah, so there was there was a residency yeah. they had in London for several months, if not a year. Then it, you know, then they went around Europe and I think Australia. Then and it's, it's going around. And now they brought yeah. it back again. Yeah. And, and did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy watching it on the stage? I loved it. It was fabulous. It was just great. I mean, the production was great. The a guy I don't think he's doing he's not doing it anymore, I know, but a guy, Andrew Pollock, played the played the lead when I saw it and I thought he was he was kind of astounding. He's right now, I've been watching him on Facebook. There they did the a musical version of The Grinch Who Stole Christmas yes. out in San Diego. So he's the Grinch with all the he's a brilliant performer. Um, but yeah, obviously he's not in it. I had a blast in, in Big Bad at Hell Musical. I thought it was fun. Yeah, well, I, I sort of also became kind of amazed with Andrew because he just seemed so... Um, yes. 
I don't know, he he just encapsulated, yeah, he sort of managed to get that part so well. And then I saw it one night with his understudy and it was good, but he, he you know, he, on paper, he probably didn't sort of seem like he would be that amazing, but in on the stage when it kicked off and the the big bang happened and it started, it was just- Oh yeah, and, wow, uh, right? And right. Christine as well, his sidekick as well at that time. So um, I think the parents are still doing it. They've come back and are going to be touring the country. But the first, uh-huh. the, the couple are, are definitely doing other things from from what I've seen on yeah. um, social media. So there you go. But I do. I thought it was right. just an interesting right. way of being able to take the music of this kind of such a legendary songwriter and performer, you know, Jim Steinman and Meatloaf, and then sort of make something kind of interesting. Because if there was a tribute band I'd probably not really be bothered but to see a stage musical was really spectacular so um I thought right because a tribute band would be like you know it's still in the same genre like a rock and roll show with a guy singing the meatloaf stuff but these these are characters yeah and within a within a play so it it it, you don't feel like you're going to compare it to seeing meatloaf on stage Yes, singing, and, singing and sort of that embarrassing thing of whether the band are going to try and dress up as the original band, which is often quite embarrassing. I've seen a few, and it's like I wish they didn't do that because they obviously. I know. <laughs> it's, I best know. Just, it's best just go out as as you as you are. But one thing, yeah. that's, one thing that's always kind of curious because because I, I was born. This isn't that exciting though. But I was born in '64, so my early musical moment in life was the early '70s of glam of you know Sweet Slade, Gary Glitter. But luckily, David Bowie was my first single and first love. What was your musical awakening? Because mostly we have a moment when we're at a certain age, sometimes five, sometimes 10, where something happens and you think, God, that's just amazing. Did you have one of those moments? Well, that young, five yeah. or 10? Well, well um, or, or you might, you know, just, just that moment that you might have seen or heard something on the radio, your parents were playing something. Well, I think it was the girl groups. You know, it, it was definitely the girl groups. And and the 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 record um I uh the first single I ever bought was He's So Fine by right. I it wasn't the Chiffons, I'm not sure. And so there was it was all those kind of bands and uh the four seasons, but then it progressed into the um uh Detroit stuff, you know, the temptations, um, the four tops, and then and then it got into, you know, it that that took it into the uh you know the 60s where you know this you know the Beatles, but the Stones were always really my bands, and then the American, you know, the great rock and roll yeah uh bands and artists um in the 60s and 70s. So when you sort of came through, you know, like seeing the 60s happen, you know, and it unfolded and there was obviously you saw sort of bits of the early Beatles and then you saw the psychedelic period. And then it came to the, you know, the, the 69, 70, where suddenly, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin died. What was that like as a sort of a teenager sort of thinking, my God, or, you know, and, you know, just at that point of seeing people who had been so influential for about five years sort of just suddenly pass and then a new decade appears and it feels like the party's got a bit messy yeah. and Charles Manson obviously what was it like for you at that right. stage you know I, I think uh, I, I hate to say it but I don't remember you know being like all brokenhearted you know I was young enough that I knew that, that there was going to be more more to come 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I loved uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know, um, Janis Joplin. I was a fan for a long time, but then she just got too burnt out in that voice. No, I mean, you know, and, and, and I, you know, it's terrible, but the whole, the whole uh, Manson thing, you know, was, was there was kind of a ghoulish fasc fascination about the whole thing. Yes. But, you know, when did you? I guess I'm saying that I, I was okay with the, yes, all you of were, that. Yes, you were cool. <laughs> I was cool. It was just happened. It just happened. But then, yeah. obviously, when did you start to discover your voice and, and sort of performing? When did this sort of start to emerge? Well, that happened very young. I think when I was in in uh, grade school, grammar school, um, did did plays and sang, uh, you know, in the choir. We started to do musicals there. And, you know, and then in high school, I did, you know, a lot of theater, musical stuff. And um, in college, I, I had my first band, a band called Big Jive. And uh, I had a, boy, a boyfriend who was the guitarist, of course, and I was the girl singer, yes. you know, but, but I, you know, it, I, started, I, I started singing with Barbara Streisand very young. I, I loved all the Streisand stuff, so I sang with her. I would say my two biggest um, uh, influences are, are Mick Jagger and Barbara Streisand, you, you know, which, which I guess makes sense when you see how I sing and what kind of performer I am. Yes, absolutely. That's that is you know that that all makes complete sense, doesn't it? Really. And then mm -hmm. sort of musically, you obviously there was sort of sort of fashions. There was that sort of West Coast rock, and then there was, I don't know, a lot of kind of country tinged music as well. And then we had progressive rock with those supergroup bands like the, you know, Yes and Genesis. And then punk came along. Where what was your sort of musical journey at that kind of stage? You know, because obviously. You were, were you trying to sort of make music a career in the in the sort of the, the mid seventies? Um, I you know I I didn't uh, presume to to think I was going to have a musical career because I was I was you know like I had that band but then I was doing theater and uh, but in seventy six is when I met uh, Meatloaf and and Jim doing doing a uh, a theater uh, piece, a show called the National Lampoon Show. Yes. And uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was original stuff, but it was, you know, all rock stuff. And Jim was a musical director. And at the time he was writing the, um, the, the record, the Bad Out of Hell record. And, you know, I was there. He liked my singing. He loved my singing. So he wrote, um, he wrote Paradise. And that's that sort of catapulted, you know, the whole concept that, you know, I I would be able to take because I, I have done musicals. I have done, you know, musical theater, but I think the real I have the most um, unique part of, of what I can do is in rock and roll. A lot of, you know, what I do in, in you know, what I've done in musicals, I think other people can do it. But I think my voice is is pretty as like I said, unique for, for rock and roll. So I was able to, through him, through that record, to go on and and believe that I I would be able to uh, to have the career in music, to have the career in rock and roll. 
Yes, absolutely. Because because the late seventies and early eighties, you know, you certainly really get sort of a lot of traction at this point. And you're also working with some major players like Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson, who yeah. you know, obviously have been with Bowie and the Spiders for Mars. Did you have a lot of kind of encouragement at that stage of this is you know you're going to be sort of on this road and this is going to be it for the next five ten years i did um i i i i credit a guy named steve popovich who was the um his his record label put out the the he but he discovered meatloaf and steinman and his record later label put out Bad Out of Hell. And then he, you know, took me on and signed me. And and uh, I did three albums on his, on the Cleveland International slash Epic Records. So I did, I had a lot of support. Yes, that was quite interesting. The, the Cleveland International Epic, that rolls off the tongue, doesn't it, uh-huh. so easily. But then, you know, at the height- Not you know, really. We, <laughs> I know, but um, but then the the one of the great sort of moments in life is is the sort of follow up album spirit of um Saint Louis with with the members of the Clash. So you know that's just an amazing sort of marriage, isn't it? Really to to happen because obviously they'd had so much kind of attention with you know their first three or four albums, and they were sort of looked upon as these sort of demigods of the, the punk world. What was that kind of relation? How did you get to meet each other? By the way. How did that come together? Um, well, I I guess, you know, right after my first album, I I went I was doing some some touring in Europe and I went to and I was played a a venue there. Was there a place called the venue? Is that is could that be right? That what, could what, be I right, yes. What? Yes, I think it is right, yes. But it was a big, it was a nice, very nice uh, sort of a theater. And so I, I went there a couple of nights before uh, my show to see something. And I met Mick Jones there. And then, you know, that's how it all started. Met him and got involved with the whole, the whole bunch. I know. That's, that's quite a band you had there. So, uh-huh. so completely different to the first album can you remember much about the recording process because this was done in Wessex Studios London wasn't it so that was quite yeah and um and obviously the material had all been written mostly by you know Strummer and and Mick Jones so what was the kind of the general Uh vibe of that sort of uh, period like for you um well it was it, it it was a shock to the system because, you know, I had been, I had just uh, been born, you know, into this, into this with, with one album and, you know, was on that, that trajectory. And then, you know, went and started working with them and it was a whole other thing. And I adapted, uh, but, you know, it probably wasn't what I would have been doing if I had not have been at that club that night and met him and you know it all I I started going out with him and then became became that uh, part of my life um no but the, I I like I really like the way they work because it was very uh improvisational you know things just just happened like you know they would and experimental is a better word for it experiment with sort of different sounds and um obviously 
uh, sort of the some of the lyrics Joe wrote for this this record were were not something he would have written for for himself and for the Clash and and uh, so I think for everybody it was it was something new not as new as it was for me because I was <laughs> like what where am I yes what I'm, not I'm not in Kansas anymore. Except that I came from Missouri, but you get it. <laughs> it was it was a sort of a weird detour, really, in a different cul-de-sac, in a different yeah, place. Yes. So then, like so yes. then, <clears throat> with the momentum, you know, you get the third album, Another Breath, comes up. I mean, again, you know, there must have been quite a lot of kind of readjusting, and also there isn't that much time between it, just a couple of years, isn't there? So again, but it's a completely different band and a completely different, quite a different sound again. So what was the journey right. like for you on? that point well it was you know that was kind of a uh i don't know on, on the part of 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 the people around me because you know um the, another um spirit of st louis was 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 taken as you know uh, this this was not a good idea this didn't you know represent you didn't follow up so let's go back let's go back but even further back, you know, whatever your first record was a rock and roll record. So let's go further back and be even safer and do kind of a, a record with, a, you know, mainly pop on it. So that's pretty much what that was. And, you know, they put me together with a producer, Vinnie Poncia, who had done, you know, I think he had done Martha Reeves. He had done a lot of stuff like that. He had a, you know, the bona fides of, of like a real, like a, a pop producer, but it, it sort of, you know, it took it, it took it way in another direction. Yes. And uh, we, we're actually doing in our show, we're doing this, this song called Boys in the Attic, which was co-written uh, by Ellie Greenwich, by the, the great Ellie Greenwich. So that's a fantastic, uh, you know, girl group kind of sound. And I don't think I've ever performed it before, but we're doing it now with our band. Yes, absolutely. This is going to be very exciting. And then, yeah, it's good. but but as with a lot of people, you know, who've been in the music world, there is that kind of moment where things are getting go really beautifully, and you're thinking this is fantastic. And then the tricky bit. So was that was the sort of the mid '80s? Did you have a sort of existential moment of where what happens next until sort of Pandora's box? I did. Comes in? I think I think that after this, the Another Breath record. You know, that, you know, in spite of the fact that people said that, record people said that's what they wanted, there was no support. And I felt, I don't know, it was, it was kind of a lonely, slightly dispiriting kind of time. And I didn't even, you know, I had a three record deal, but I didn't push to go any further after that. So I'm like, fine, you know, I, I let me just be an employee. I don't need to be the, the boss and have my own record deal and, you know, be going through all this, which isn't giving me a lot of joy. And uh, so I went back and, and I was able to really jump into film and theater and Broadway and, you know, all that kind of stuff for, yes. for quite some time. Yeah. Well, I know you you were in sort of like in the in the eighties, it was from the great King of comedy with, you know, Martin Scorsese and, um, Robert De Niro, which we loved, and then Fatal Attraction and Cocktail. So you obviously, you know, were still doing it. When you got the call from Jim to do Original Sin, was did that feel quite a relief at that stage to sort of be sort of phoned again and said, oh, do you want to do another album of my material? Um, 
sure I was, I don't know, relief, but it was, I was very happy. I mean, I was in a show on Broadway at that time. So it was a little tricky, you know, during eight shows a week, you know, trying to, you know, and it was, it was a show called Me and My Girl. That was actually a British show that had been like from the thirties. So it was very sweet singing, very, you know, almost musical kind of stuff to go in and singing, you know, with Simon, but you know, it all worked out. It, it was fun. It was, it was great fun. Yes, absolutely. And then, and then, and then did you stick with sort of doing bits and pieces before you sort of came up with the sort of the follow-up album, which was About Time, which was obviously 2013? I just I'm wondered, sorry, you broke, you, you, you cut out for a second. Did yeah, I, I, I'm just saying that, um, during that that sort of you know from the nineties, there was quite a period of time before you brought out your next album, which is about time. Um, right. So there'd been quite a gap. Had you still sort of performing music and still doing it, or were you focusing much more on sort of theatre and film at that stage? No, I had two kids. You know, I had I had a child in in nineteen ninety 1990 and nineteen ninety four, right. and so. So at that point, I, I just sort of, I didn't do anything for a long time, you know, and the longer I didn't do it, the more fear I had uh, about going out there and say, being in, in the theater or film or TV about auditioning, you know, I got pretty phobic about all that. So I did things here and there, but I, you know, I, I was not driven. I didn't have a lot of drive at that point. And then, but I, I, what turned it around was this show I did in 08 called uh, Hercules in High Suburbia, where I met Paul Paglino because he wrote the music and, and words. And we did that show. And then then we started working together, you know, on putting together um, songs for a band, which eventually became songs for a uh, an album with, in 2013. Right, uh, my God. About was, time record, right. And, you know, he also, at that stage, I mean, has got an, another impressive lineup of musicians around. Did that feel like you had somebody who sort of was around to sort of give you a bit of protection and sort of, you know, just sort of handle the tricky stuff so you could focus on the vocals? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I've, you know, and I still feel that way when I'm around Paul because he's very, he's very calm. And you always, you always think, you know, everything's going to be okay. And he'll, he'll help me. He'll figure it out. And uh, he, I always call him my weird little brother, you know, but it's, uh, but he's more like the big brother because, yeah, I mean, he's given me all this music and, and um, implemented it in a very, in a very uh, comfortable, safe way for me. Well, that's interesting. You know, you need you, we all need someone to care for us occasionally to just, yeah. just to sort of bat out the sort of weird stuff that goes on in life, which is tricky. And again, a fantastic band that you you know got assembled around you. So putting those songs together, did that feel like quite a journey for you, sort of in the studio again, sort of being responsible, not responsible, but having your name on the album and realizing this is going to be, you know, not expose you, but sort of certainly put a certain, a bit of spotlight on you again after those, you know, years or decade of, of being. Yeah. Of yeah. You know, uh, a little less than I had hoped because when you put that record out, you know, there, I didn't, 
yeah, I had never done anything without a record label or anything. So it was a bit of a, you know, a, a, a shock. And then I just wasn't able to find people to to make it happen. I, I got a press press agent. I had a manager, you know, for a few years and none of these people panned out. So and, the, and then I, you know, and then in, in 2014, a year after that, I started going over to to Europe, to to uh, the Netherlands and Belgium, which I've done like every year, at least a couple times a year to do shows over there. So um, I was doing that. So, uh, but but then when after we did this record, um, we uh, hooked up with Randy, uh, the press agent, who's made all the difference all the difference, you know, you know, getting, getting me out there, getting, you know, more press attention than I, you know, can remember even getting back in the day. But I don't think that's true because especially on that first record, I, you know, I got a lot of uh, great press, you know, internationally, but he, uh, he's, he's terrific. So I feel, you know, I feel like it's out there. It's, it's definitely out there where the last one, I didn't feel it was so much, but but now I do, and now I I another guy like Charlie Roth, you know, I'm in. You're we're in his hands because he's you know doing musical directing, and he's a brilliant arranger. So it feels like the pieces are in place really nicely. Yes. Point. So you got dates, haven't you, coming up, or you've got at least one date? Do you have anything? Well, I do- I we well we did we did one in at the in the end of October. Then we're doing this uh, show in uh, it's the sixteenth of December at a place called the Cutting Room here in New York. Right. And then after that, after that, you know, hopefully, um, you know, they, you know, I want to hook up with the booking person or somebody. You know, it's, I, I don't. Charlie is sort of working it, but I don't have a business person as it was. But I do have have. Uh, 10 dates in uh, in Holland in January, which I have had to cancel twice before be- because of COVID. And now it looks like I might have to cancel it again because it looks like over there, things aren't good. No, they're, they're getting, they were getting a bit tricky. The UK are okay. We're just, we're just being very relaxed about the whole COVID thing. It's all back to normal here in a strange sort of way. I don't know. It could all go weird again, but it seems yeah. like it's, um, every, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy time, but you're theoretically 2022, you're going to be playing some dates, hopefully in Europe. Yes. In January. In January, in so, fact. Yeah. Is, which is frighteningly quite close. Which now. is soon, you know. I mean, we're talking what six or seven weeks from now, and I just read today that they were they were rioting in the street because of COVID restrictions in the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah, I know the news is all, all about that. I just thought, oh dear, I didn't realize yeah. you had a tour lined up at the same time. Which is annoying. Yeah, this has just come to sort of annoy us all this moment. And how do you kind of? keep your vocal in such good condition because obviously you know every vocalist must be sort of relying on this kind of um yes instrument and and do you sort of have to practice a lot to keep oh it? yeah yes um but my thing is that i i don't practice i don't do anything then i'm like oh i have a gig 
So for like the, the, the seven or eight weeks before the gig, I practice every day and really, you know, work out and get the muscle back in shape, which is before our, our thing in October's, which is what I did. And it, it really paid off. Yes. Mostly, my God. I, yeah. And if you and if you could have said something like to your a 16, 18 year old who was starting out in this kind of interesting world of music and entertainment, is there any kind of key little things you'd have just said, oh, I've got a few things I'd love to whisper, something that you might say, yes, keep doing that or something that, you know, like, oh, I'd watch out for that. or I'd, I would really do something else, not do something else. Um, but yeah, I just wondered what your some kind of pearls of wisdom that has sort of happened. You know, trust yourself, you know, I mean, because when I did it, I think it, it was early on, uh, the, the, it was the male dominant dominance in, in the field. And I might've gotten um, uh, waylaid by, by other people's opinions, not, not you know, even, even as young as I was, I had instincts, I'm sure I, I had instincts that at times, uh, maybe I should have relied on more or, you know, not, not be such an idiot. <laughs> Don't be <laughs> such an idiot. <laughs> like, you know, oh, I have a boyfriend. Oh, that, that, I'll go run over here. But, you know, forget it. You know, you, you know, when you're young, you think everything, you know, is going to last forever. And this is it. Well, it's not. You got you to gotta think about yourself. If you want to be an artist, you need to be selfish. You can't put yourself in the back seat. Yes. You have to. You have to. You have to be selfish. You know, in that way, in that, um, trust your instincts. Trust your talent. You know, don't, don't, don't let yourself be intimidated. Which is a and now because you know nobody intimidates me now. I don't care. You know, which is like and I think I'm better now than I ever was. Yes. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, but. I don't know. Does it slightly make you cringe remembering what it was like in the sort of the 70s and the 80s in that sort of the environment that you were having to work in, thinking, my God, the things that happened would have just not been allowed to happen today? Um, in terms of... Well, what? just because you mentioned, and, and it's kind of quite obvious, I suppose, because more things keep coming out, you know, the male-dominated culture that happened you know I was talking to you know um, a musician who's also is a bit of a journalist and was just saying it was a very very male-dominated world being a journalist as well as the music industry you know all the you know the bosses the engineers the producers uh -huh. the musicians you know there weren't an awful lot of you know women around and, and right not right. always that well looked after or given that much kind of respect and I just wondered if you know when you look back you you know, some of it makes you cringe what you, you know, you recommend. Well, no, I never felt, I, I like I was put in any, um, any really, really uncomfortable or dangerous position. So I let myself, let the, myself be put in any kind of anything like that, any, any kind of abusive situations, anything like that. Yes. I was, yeah, I just Welcome. wanted just like attitudes or anything, you know, in, in that world. Because cause, cause you recorded um, on Meatloaf's last album, didn't you, I, I believe, um, a song called Braver Than, Than We Are. Was that, mm -hmm. was that, a, was that a interesting and, and 
nice experience to sort of have that you know opportunity to to sing again with him it was nice yes you know but that's that's when I sort of at that point started my love affair with Carla you know we had just we had just sort of started talking before that uh, at this um this evening of of Jim's stuff and and then right after that it was when the the meet uh, stuff happened and it was nice to be in the studio with him it really it was it was it was there was nothing crazy about it it was it was it was all very grown up and civilized it was nice yes i mean it is it is quite amazing that um to you know these kind of circles or these kind of moments get connected don't they from you know one year to one decade to another so it's it must be quite nice that that happens but anyway uh-huh. look it's all good stuff. But thank you ever so much. And I'm really sorry about that time business. I should have checked, double t- checked and not just read the email. Went, oh, 10 o'clock no. on my calendar. Yeah, I, yeah, I didn't really, you know, look past four o'clock, you know, where, you know, it was like 10 o'clock your time. I, Because I, obviously it's five hours difference. But yeah, but it's Randy's fine. very good. Andy has other good points. Maybe not figuring out time zones, but otherwise he's excellent. No, he's lovely. He's he's absolutely he's great. Amazing. Yeah, and he's been a delight. But anyway, look, thank you ever so much for giving me your time for this. This has been amazing. And I'll and I'll send him a link to the interview, and you can always use it elsewhere. But all the best for the do. album. And I've really enjoyed listening to it over the last couple of weeks, and it's been fantastic. And also, actually, thank you very much, David coming back to your other solo albums as well, which has been fascinating. And um, yes, it's been good. But luckily, we're all walking and talking and, and got our marbles. So, you know, yee-haw. Yeah, man. It's all good. I, it's good. Anyway, okay. look, have a lovely evening and take care. You too. Thanks a lot. Okay, Jamie. David. Cheers. You Bye-bye. take care. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. I know. That was, um, that's how you say goodbye in a very concise way. I love leaving that bit in because it always makes me smile. Anyway, a massive thank you to Ellen Foley for giving me the time for that interview. Um, if you want to know any more information, she has got various websites and uh, presence on Twitter and Facebook, I do believe. But anyway, Google, that's the word, isn't it? Um, and this is uh, the C86 show, David Eastor. If you want to contact me, For some nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show and you'll find me. All these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. Do you check them out? Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.